Hi, I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is Kirsten Green, Associate Professor of Literacy Education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at the State University of New York at New Pulse. Kirsten's research focuses on policy and practice in education technology. She received her PhD in urban education at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and her MSCD in early childhood and elementary education at Bank Street College of Education. Prior to joining the faculty at New Pulse, Kirsten taught elementary school in New York City. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me today. Let's begin with the very idea of electronic technology, phones, tablets, computers in the classroom. How is this technology affecting and modifying the classroom environment? Well, how much time do we have, John? Um, (laughs) (laughs) As much as you'd like. So there are many, many different ways in which I think technology is affecting the classroom right now. And I think we are, you know, ask five different people and you'll get five different answers. The way that I think about this on a daily basis is from the perspective of a teacher educator, thinking about preparing new teachers for the classroom. And quite honestly, it feels like we're building the ship as we're sailing it. Um, I think that the changes have been many. And in some ways, the changes also recreated some of the challenges of education that we've had in the past. So not sure if that gets at your, the heart of your question, really, but are you looking for from the perspective of teachers, from the perspective of students, from teacher educators, or all of the above? Well, I think that as we go on talking, we're going to touch all of the above. Okay, okay. But I know that one place to start would be, what are some of the characteristics of technology that immediately strike you as positively facilitating teaching and learning? Sure. And one thing I want to do, um, I gave a recent talk here on campus about sort of the future of education. And one one of my colleagues afterwards said, um, well, I posed a question to the, the audience at one point, two questions. I said, well, what do you think is the purpose of technology in society? And then I followed that up quickly with, well, what do you think the purpose of technology in the classroom is? And afterward, this colleague, who's also a good friend of mine, said, you know, I feel like you should define technology when you're talking about it. And so I just want to start there for one second and think about, out loud about what I mean when I talk about technology. And really, I'm thinking out loud about the internet. The devices that we use are going to change to access the, the network, right, that connects us all through the ether. And really, I'm thinking out loud about the developments of the internet in the classroom to be able to collaborate, to be able to research and gather information, and to be able to connect. So I think I mean, those three things right there are some of the things that have made that technology, I think, has contributed to the the classroom in a really positive way. It's created the opportunity to gather information and go on field trips, for instance, virtual field trips around the world, access experiences and information and stories about what it's like to live elsewhere and what experiences are like for people around the world in ways that we just couldn't when I was in fifth grade. You know, I remember my fourth grade teacher had a little stack of index cards on the windowsill that sat in like a little old recipe box type box. And in that box were contacts to agents of celebrities around the world. And it was this teeny tiny, you know, three by five inch box of cards. And that was like our version of the internet, really this idea that you could reach out and connect almost to anyone through the mail at that time, right? And so when you think about what technologies brought into the classroom and really speed, right? Being able to access information at a, at a faster rate 
and being able to access information that you previously didn't have contact with. And of course, that comes along with a variety of challenges as well. But I think it's also provided the opportunity to see what's happening in the classroom in a variety of new and surprising ways or different ways, being able to look at data about students in a 360 degree view, and that also brings a lot of challenges with it. But it's, it's helpful information. Some of the apps that are available now that gather data for classroom teachers, I wish that I had some of those. And at the same time, I sense that there is an increasing disconnect between teachers and their students because of technology. So it's like the, the bad doesn't, or the good doesn't come, out, come without the bad, right? So speaking of some of the challenges, technology comes to schools wrapped in commerce. Tech firms like Google and Apple target schools as a huge market and as a way of reaching potential customers early in life when they're kids. Um, software firms promise miraculous results. So how can school districts and teachers evaluate what technology is going to help them reach their goals? That is a really, really good big question that I, I'm not sure I have the, the answer. <laughs> However, I'm not sure those, those conversations are even happening in a lot of places right now. I know things have certainly changed since I was in the classroom, but I think of being a literacy coach at the school where I taught, where often it would be the end of the year, the end of the fiscal year, we'd have a certain amount of money that we'd have to spend and sort of, you know, in a frenzy, make decisions about how that money was going to be spent that would then affect the coming school year. And I think to some extent, the same thing is being replicated. And in, in, in some cases, it's happening faster and bigger decisions are being made in snap moments because funding cycles are what they are and decisions have to be made. But as far as evaluation of devices, tools, platforms that are being used, there's not a one any one approach actually that I've seen that I think is is working right now and certainly not at the college level where we don't have as much access to the materials and tools that teachers are using in the classroom and students are using. One of the things that I argue in my research is that we need to be able to carve out space to have these conversations to say, okay, your principal is going to ask you to use a new tool next week, right? Where was the conversation to decide whether or not that tool was what the teachers need or want in their classrooms? Many school districts have technology committees and in fact are supposed to so that there is a space where these conversations happen. Many of those committees are on a volunteer basis. And so it's, you know, who can afford to have childcare to come to an after school or evening meeting? Who is able to be available at any given time? Who's, you know, walking by the main office when a decision needs to get made and gets pulled into a conversation? So I think one of the things that's against us right now is time. There's not a real clear understanding of as all of these changes are happening more and more rapidly, where is it we get to take a breath and hit pause and say, well, is this effective, right? In many ways, education is about assessment. And we haven't had an an opportunity to really stop and say, well, are these things working? And I think a perfect case in point is the Smart Schools Bond Act in New York State, which is this huge $2 billion funding policy that went into effect in 2014. And it essentially brought a ton of tech into K-12 schools. So there are six different funding categories. And essentially it's stuff, you know, computers and smart boards and that sort of thing. And then, or interactive displays rather, um, because smart boards are just one type of interactive display. They often get called, it's like Xerox machines, right? Right. Um, So there are six categories of funding and all of them are essentially for stuff or infrastructure improvements to make the stuff work, right? So to make sure that the wireless uh, network is able to handle the megabytes per second that the devices send across the wireless network, right? There was no funding along with that policy to train teachers. So schools are getting 
tons of stuff, but there's no, and in fact, each school that is putting forth a plan for how they're going to use this funding has to say, here's our professional development plan. But there is no, without the support of resources and materials, right, to support that professional development plan, each school is sort of, it's left up to their own devices to figure out how teachers are going to be trained to use these new things. So it's just become this perpetual emotion machine where schools are creating, are getting more stuff more and more all the time. And already some of those things that were funded in 2014 are breaking or obsolete because that's how quickly technology is working. And there's no evaluation of whether or not that policy is doing what it said it's going to do, which is to improve opportunity for the students in New York State through technology. So it's interesting when I tried to poke around and figure out a little bit with folks at the state education department to find out like, how is this policy being assessed and then improved to go forward? And so we don't have a great system for evaluating whether or not the technology we're bringing into the classroom actually is effective. And that's problematic. Hmm. Well, you spoke about virtual field trips and that's fantastic, you know, to give students access to worlds they have never experienced. We speak a lot about the universe of obligation, and I'm wondering whether these virtual field trips give students an opportunity to develop some empathy. I don't see enough critical conversations and conversations around the social emotional impact of being able to connect. I see lots of lots of apps and things developed around how to develop social emotional skills or even like check off boxes to say, yes, I feel this way today or I feel that way today. But that's not, that's sort of substituting for and not, um, it's like missing the point of human connection, right? So I think that the opportunities to develop empathy, to develop a moral compass, right? Used by using these tools or when they're used right and when they develop an opportunity to connect, not just say, oh, I watched that video and now I understand what it's like in, say, the Amazon rainforest, right? But that there's an opportunity to have conversations, think out loud, critically consider problems and find solutions and think about how, how systems of power work too, right? Like we're not, we're not, Hopefully, I'm, I'm sure that there are many teachers that are, that are doing an incredible job of harnessing virtual reality and, and augmented reality tools to be able to do exactly what you're suggesting, but I think it's actually a huge missed opportunity. And what I see when I go to tech conferences and, and sit in on, on conversations where decisions are being made about what next. And I, if, if it's okay, I'd love to go back to this question of like how decisions are getting made in, in the evaluation process for just one second. Sure. As a teacher educator, I assumed that part of my work would be informing policy, right? Would be doing research to disseminate in the wider teacher preparation world to inform changes that would then happen. And with a background in policy, that's very much my interest. I've been working on an article for the last three years about the Smart Schools Bond Act that I'll send out at some point this winter that may or may not be published for another two years. That means in the, f- the five years, right, that have lapsed since this idea was, har- was hatched, many, many things will change. And so the research system as it's set up, largely housed at universities and colleges, is not keeping time with the changes in K-12 right now. And that's part of the challenge, too. Changes are happen- happening more quickly than they can actually be evaluated. And that's a bit of a gross generalization about how research happens and then informs society, right? But we're being left out of the conversation in some, uh, to some extent at colleges and universities right now. Not all, but, but some. So I have a question 
following up on the idea of the conversation and also going back to, I mean, Amy asked in terms of, of field trips, for example, but at a more global level in terms of a conversation about education that our guests, you know, on our podcast have told us repeatedly that relationships are at the core of ethical democratic schooling and of children's learning. So how can technology be utilized in a way that helps to build these relationships rather than replacing them with interaction with the screen? Well, I think that's, I mean, that's our, my biggest fear right there, what you just said, is that teachers are in fact being replaced by screens. I think that the opportunities we have with technology for just having this conversation right now, right across time and space, to be able to see your faces and hear your voices and think out loud with you is incredible. It would be very different from you send me, sending me, say, a Google Doc, right, and, and type in your responses or record your responses. And even that would be new technology. It would be, right? There's something <laughs> right. in this moment where we're having a conversation <laughs> we can hear and see each other in real time that's different, right? And so I think when technology offers that opportunity to connect, think out loud, and feel productive and engaged and like you're building a relationship in a community, it's, the, the possibilities are endless. I think when, when we see um, what my parent activist friend, um, Allison McDowell in Philadelphia, calls like sort of educational playlists, when we see playlists for students, like I, I did step one and then I check it off and I move on to, to step two and then I insert information into an app that spits out my assessment to me and then I go on to step three and um, there's no interaction with other students or no interaction with the teacher. That's scary to me. That's really problematic. I mean, it's what Isaac Asimov wrote about, you know, in the 60s and 70s as, as our future. And it's happening in some schools. So I, I'm very wary of, I guess, <laughs> to answer your question, there are many, many ways. There, I mean, the possibilities really are endless. I think we need to have more conversations about what we don't know. We don't even know what the long-term psychological, physical effects, right, are of being on screens. All we know is that the APA has said, no more than two hours for young children, right? And yet we have pre-K and kindergarten classrooms utilizing screens most of the day. That's problematic. We need to really be thinking about The APA that. is the American Psychological Association? Um, I'm pediatric. Pediatric Association. Mm -hmm. And I can follow up on that with a link at some point, but I was just reading something the other day that referenced a study that I think came out earlier this year that talked about no more than two hours as a time frame for kids under five. Sure, and we'll post that link when you sure. send it to us. Sure. Yep. So we often discuss how the inequities and imbalances in the larger society are reproduced in the classroom. When and how does technology help to mitigate some of these differences, and when does it exacerbate the inequalities? So the tricky thing about technology, and it, it's sort of, I think it's often marketed as this universal equalizer mm -hmm. um, and this very neutral thing, when in fact, I mean, as we learned about from Jesse Hagopian in the last episode, right, nothing is actually neutral when he quoted um, Howard Zinn and you can't be neutral on a, on a moving train. I mean, technology was built by humans. When we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, everything that computers are, quote unquote, becoming smarter at doing is filtered by, by humans, right? So if we live in a white supremacist society, my fear about what's happening with AI and machine learning is that white supremacy is getting hard coded right into the ways in which machines around us are becoming quote unquote smarter. So I think there are incredible ways that technology can mitigate uh, and push back against the reproduction 
of the status quo in our society, of racism, of sexism, of transphobia. And I think those tools, you know, people use on a daily basis are through social media, through being able to do social networking with like-minded folks and think outside, you know, perhaps the pathways that you're on on a daily basis in the real world, right? You can, you can create and forge new pathways and communities with people in ways that we simply couldn't have done 10 years ago, five years ago even. So that's incredible, right? The, the opportunity for connection, the ability to share data faster and more broadly than we ever could have before. I think of during like Occupy Wall Street, I worked briefly with the, the printmakers there. I made a little Quickstarter video for them and the artists were trying to disseminate their posters, right? They, they'd created a number of different posters for Occupy. And so we utilized the social networking that was available at that time in a crowdsourcing platform and were able to raise some significant money to support that work for the activists at the time. That was really important, you know, and, and created this this archive of beautiful artwork that we have from that time that is now available to, to be seen on the internet. So I think there are many, many different ways. There's not any one way that we can mitigate in, inequity, but there is this very sort of sinister side when we think about like what data is being collected on us, right? When we interact right now, as we are, we are interacting through the ether, what information, right, is being collected and packaged and, and saved somewhere on some server. That's scary to me. So I'm not sure if I completely answered your question, Amy, maybe, maybe raise some more questions um, than answer, but I think that there's an equal and opposite, well, it's not even equal and opposite, but there, there are multiple pressures, right? And there are multiple systems of power that are being replicated just by this thing that we have, the internet. At the same time, when you, I read this, um, started reading this book this summer called Surveillance Valley, the secret history, uh, military history of the internet, and learned about the, the development of the internet, which is so fascinating. It developed in this very interesting public-private way. It was funded by the government, but it was sort of planted through something called ARPANET, which was the very early version of the internet, at Ivy League institutions throughout the country. And then from there, it was built through colleges and universities, right? And just that act, right, is creating a privileged beginning to the internet, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at how the internet has actually been regulated, there has been almost no regulation. It's very interesting how there was an early bid for companies to decide, you know, how this thing was going to be built and regulated. And so it was whoever was able to get to the table and had the money to decide how that was going to get built. Um, it's also incredible that things can be shared for free, right? That people can build open source and, and creative commons resources to be shared in a very sort of socialist open way, which is incredible. And it's a funny thing to have, right, in this very wildly neoliberal system to have this thing that sort of, we can, we can actually resist the system with the very tool that produced it, if that makes sense. It does. A month or so ago, we spoke with Lev Moscow, my son, who's taught history at the Beacon School in New York City for 14 years or so. Lev observed that students are so accustomed to the snack-sized content that they get online that it's almost impossible to get them to read anything book length. Um, students are now obviously immersed in technology in every aspect of their lives, in school and outside of school. Another huge question, how can schools adapt to this? Wow, it's something that I, in some ways, I wish I'd been gathering more data since I started in this work. You know, I began my education career in 1999, but I've been a, a college professor and this is my seventh year. And so in that time, in that brief six years, right, I've seen a real change in college students and their ability to interact with the ether and also their, their knowledge base, right? So 
in 2013, I feel like students had some, you know, pretty big discomfort around what was, you know, cloud has become cloud computing is more ubiquitous now. So Office 365 and Google Drive, but really new social media. And now there's been sort of a shift, like students really do understand how to use cloud computing and documents more and more, but have sort of an aversion at times to social media. So that it's interesting that the students are definitely changing. And I completely forgot your original question, John. I'm so sorry. No, well, I mean, that's a really interesting response because I hadn't heard that at all in terms of the increase. And it's anecdotal. Discomfort, but it, anecdotes are, are stuff also. Sure. Um, but the question was, I mean, what Lev was experiencing, and it'd be interesting whether this is different at a high school level and yeah. a university level, because he was talking about the difficulties in getting students to focus on reading. Right. As a, as a source of knowledge and instead being so oriented towards getting it through through the internet through media and i would have to agree with that i did disagree with something in the podcast but i'll I'll raise that in a second but oh great i think he's absolutely right i think that there is this instant gratification of wanting to be able to access information in a split second and if you can't get it then you feel frustrated right so for example right now i'm teaching a class on doing action research in the classroom and Part of that class requires students to write literature reviews. And this is at the graduate letter level. Very few of my my grad students right now really have done sort of big R research and or any sort of literature review. And they don't know how to access or get past the paywall of to get into the library um, on our campus to gain access to articles. So many of them are doing research, you know, many of them are full-time teachers and are doing their research at home and don't quite understand that they have to be a a part of, or they have to sign into the ecosystem of the university in order to access the subscriptions of the databases that we have. And so they get to Google Scholar, see they can't get beyond an abstract of a paper and just sort of stop there and are like, can you just do it for me? Um, Which I've also, you know, I've offered to assist obviously in whatever way I can, but that's sort of an example of like, well, it's literally right there, just two more clicks away on the library website. You can see the interlibrary loan click, or you can log into the database and be able to access it. So I think there is something happening around this like instant gratification, want and need for information when you want it. And if you can't access it, sort of a, ah, throw up your hands, we'll just ask somebody to help. And, th- and that's problematic. Because um, you would think that with all the tools that we have, there would be a, an ability to critically think even further, problem solve even further. We have so many tools at our disposal, but I think that people are, are feeling tool fatigue and device fatigue and change fatigue um, in the area of education technology. And so there's this, this feeling of like, ugh, I can't do it. But even there, all the things you're talking about are within the framework of the technology mm-hmm. that students are getting impatient because they don't, know how to access the the password to get in right but what about books what about the ability or the the interest in accessing sources i'm looking as i'm looking at you i'm seeing a pile of books behind you oh, yeah i can't see where your <laughs> ceiling is but it's 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 getting there so obviously you are firmly grounded in both technology and in pages of books right are you finding either with the students, the graduate students you're working with, or are they finding with the K through 12 students that they're working with, are they finding that books just 
don't enter the picture as much or that students will read them if they're assigned but not go out of their way to read them? And if so, does this make a difference? Does it matter? It absolutely matters. Um, I would say that at the early childhood and elementary level so far, I have not thankfully seen devices replace books, at least in the, the schools that I've been with in regularly and with the the candidates, the, the teacher candidates and in-service teachers that I work with, I have not heard reportedly that books are being replaced by devices. That being said, in the state of New York, I would say that we're still seeing the effects of that Smart Schools Bond Act and still seeing schools gather technology. So it may be a different response five years from now. And I think there is something different happening at the middle and high school levels. Um, I'm not in those spaces as much because I am primarily an early childhood and elementary level instructor, but it is concerning what I've heard anecdotally. So the, the thing that I was going to disagree with, which I think is very much connected, is um, Lev said something like, I, I really discourage technology in the classroom and not necessarily around the learning experience, but like having your laptop open or having, I know phones aren't often allowed in high school, but I've heard a lot, a lot of colleagues sort of have that feeling of like, no, it shouldn't be out. It's distracting, right? And I actually do something different. I invite students to have any devices out and, of course, work with anyone individually that that's too distracting to, to make sure that that's not causing an issue. But I invite that because they're going to be going into classrooms where their students are having, many of them have one-to-one -one devices, right? So one student per one device in the school district where they're going to be ubiquitous and everywhere, and I, I try to model gracefully and otherwise, you know, how, how to talk about it. And so I say things at the beginning of the year, like, I do invite you to have your devices out and I'm not going to stand behind you if you're on Facebook and be like, you shouldn't be on Facebook, right? I do do things in the classroom where I, you know, I walk around and of course people adjust if they're not doing the quote unquote right thing. But I invite, I say, we have to self-regulate. Right. And we'll talk about like, what does that mean? What does that look like in the course of a class? If I'm getting the pull to go on Facebook or check my Instagram or look at the text message that came through, we have to figure out how to balance this multitasking because we're all getting bombarded with more messages every single day. But we also have to say, this thing that I'm doing in the classroom right now requires my undivided attention and is really important. So I don't have a perfect answer for that. I think it's a little of this and a little of that right now. We have to figure out you know, once more research comes in about the cognitive changes in learning that are happening because of technology, we should respond to that and not lose that opportunity to have face-to-face -face conversations. That's my big worry. I worry yeah. that, that my work as a faculty member at a university will be farmed out at some point to companies because we're not able to catch up anymore. And that's terrifying to me. I've worked a long time, you know, to get to this place of doing what I'm doing in my life. And I, I'm starting to realize it, it's changed so much in the short 20 years that I've been doing this and will continue to change drastically. And I'm a little worried about how. We'll see. But yeah. Well, Kirsten, going back to Lev Moscow, I think one of his primary concerns was not so much the uh, modality, so computer versus a hard copy of a book, but rather the types of messaging that happen online, which tend to be you know, short, right? And perhaps shallow, as opposed to book long format pieces. And his concern is that due to you know, spending most of their time online, kids just don't have the attention span to dig deeper. I think that's an appropriate concern. Absolutely. And I wish I had access to the science, you know, to back it up and see what's actually happening, right? But I do think that there is a constant bombardment of information and 
you know, I read a couple pages a night when I actually get around to reading right before I fall asleep. But more often than not, I'm looking at my Facebook feed. And what does that do, right? There's no continuity there at all. Yeah, it's, it's a good question that we need to keep asking. So in January, the New York State Department of Education released the Culturally Responsive Sustaining Education Framework. It was founded on a view of education that regards culture as a critical component of learning multiple expressions of diversity, including race, ethnicity, gender, language, sexual orientation, are regarded as, as assets to be recognized and cultivated. Back in 2017, you wrote an article for our newsletter, the article is posted on our website, about the overwhelming whiteness of transitional chapter books in first grade classrooms. How diverse are the software packages that you see? How could technology support or undermine the culturally responsive sustaining frameworks objectives? It's a really good question. And I think something that we need to do more work on um, in the state and around the country. I think part of, I don't see a lot of diversity um, in terms of the various categories that you just mentioned um, when it comes to software, certainly not in the, the creation of it or in sort of what it looks like on the screen. I think that in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more attention paid to awareness of inclusivity and equity and diversity. But in some ways, it's appearing like a browning of the curriculum. So you may see more brown bodies, for instance, in books or in software, in games that are played on screens, but it's not necessarily creating an opportunity to learn about different cultures or ethnicities, not creating an opportunity to learn about anything but the dominant narrative in some ways. So I, don't, I haven't seen a ton of software that is actually taking on this project. I'm sure it's out there. And I would say that a lot, of the, a lot of what I do is sort of bring the critical into the conversation around education technology, which is largely an acritical conversation so far. It's sort of this assumption that like it's better, teaching with technology is better, it's more effective, it's more neutral. And I think it's re I really take issue with that idea of it being neutral. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered? Sure. I think one thing that I am increasingly starting to think about is this idea of artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, the idea that things are becoming easier in a way, right? There are things like smart refrigerators. I don't have one, but it senses that your milk is low and then it adds milk to your Amazon pantry list or whatever you know, app you use for groceries. My question about, or my concern about all of this is number one, there's been a huge push for coding in the schools. And I, I'm not someone who is a programmer. I didn't learn about computer science, but I have taught myself a couple things, you know, in as-need basis, like how to bold in HTML and how to embed things. I rarely use that knowledge now. I used it about five years ago more and more. I don't, I don't need to know how to code to operate in this automated world. And I'm concerned about what that focus on coding is really about in K-12. Um, I have some, some questions about that. And I also... As we're, we're thinking about all of this technology that's happening in schools, right now, if, say, tomorrow I get a parking ticket, right, that information is not connected in any way to my schooling, right, my history of schooling or anything other than what's out there connected to my profile, right, in the world. 
in the future, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, all that information will be connected in a network that's being built in schools right this second. So let me say that a different way if that doesn't make complete sense. We're in a moment historically where things are not yet completely connected, even though it's becoming more connected, right? More and more homes have Google Homes or Alexas or Facebook portals and operate in this sort of automated way. There are things that, that aren't actually captured by this network right now, right? The network being the, the internet. In the future, that will not, all information will be in the same place and all the information that kids have gathered from kindergarten all the way up through high school will be connected to them as humans going forward, right? So that data, in the wrong hands can be utilized in really, really scary ways, right? And so we think about the school to prison pipeline or we think about ways in which test scores are utilized against children sometimes, right? There will be no opportunity to, to manipulate that information anymore if it's reduced to data points. And data points can say a lot of different things. And so I have concerns about what we're sort of building within schools right now without even talking about the ramifications societally of what could happen if that data is interpreted in certain ways. Um, I think about the social credit system that's in China right now and, and think about how if we're rated right on a daily basis about or on things like paying our rent on time or paying credit card bills or et cetera, the grades we get in school, right? That's scary to me to think about how our lives would change based on these data points that we have very little control over. So I'm concerned that we're not having the conversation about what the consequences, the potential consequences of this thing we're building right now with children in classrooms. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Kirsten, you, you mentioned coding and how in so many schools now, there's an emphasis on teaching coding in all grades. What do you think that's about? I think that it's about, <laughs> on the surface, about computational thinking and design thinking. I think that it, it is very much aligned with a future technological society that requires people to understand how that technological society works. I'm also worried that it has to do with social control that it has to do with shaping future workers of our society in a certain way. You know, my, my late mentor, Jean Anion, wrote about social class and the way in which the work of schooling either repro reproduces or resists a person's social class. I think that technology risks doing exactly the same thing. And I think one of the ways that may happen is through things like an overemphasis on coding. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying that coding is, is wrong or should not be taught in school. I have great friends and colleagues who are computer science you know, experts and are incredible and build these amazing algorithms. But I'm not sure I understand why the expectation is that everyone should know how to code and what, that, what message that sends about the future of our society. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kirsten Green. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thanks to our extraordinary editor, Amanda Denti, and thank you listeners for joining us. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on the Ethical Schools blog. Please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. Check out prior episodes and articles on our site, ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Till next week.